Welcome back, AAP subscribers and AAP podcast listeners. Chris Versace here, and I'm happy in this episode of the podcast to be joined by Phil Hazlitt, Chief Strategy Officer and co-founder at Equity Zen. I expect a big conversation on the markets and perhaps some interesting insights on the IPO markets as well. With that, let's bring in Phil. Phil, thank you so much for joining me. Chris, thanks for having me. Happy to be uh, here. Uh, excellent, excellent. Now, you know, I, I have to be honest, you know, Phil, I, I suspect that at least some listeners to the podcast may not be that familiar with Equity Zen. So how about we start off by you kind of sharing, uh, you know, the 411, as we like to say, on Equity Zen, and also tell us, you know, a little more about your role inside the company. Sure, happy to. So uh, Equity Zen is a platform to buy and sell shares of private companies, mostly technology companies that are backed with venture capital. Uh, this is a space that has grown quite a bit over the last 10 or so years, where you see companies get very large while they're private before they end up hitting the public markets. Uber could be a great example. Facebook could be a great example. And so what happens while the companies are private are that there are lots of people that own shares that may want liquidity for life needs. And there's a lot of investors that say, you know, I would love to get in a little bit earlier on some of these companies before they go public. So that's kind of us in a nutshell. Um, and my role here is I work with, you know, our strategy, sales teams, operations teams, a little bit of everything, been doing it for about 11 years. Uh, really excited to share more. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, just to kind of talk about your pedigree, where were you before Equity Zen? Yep. So I was in traditional finance before Equity Zen. I worked at uh, Barclays Capital. Uh, I actually interned at Lehman Brothers about two months before its demise. Uh, oh, wow. So you, you can blame me um, as, you know, the <laughs> unsuspecting intern that pressed the wrong buttons. Um, and I was doing that for a few years and I kind of got the itch to go into what I thought would be the next wave of, you know, finance and financial technology. Uh, met up with my co-founder who was, um, you know, started the business like a lot of people do, which is feeling feeling the, the struggle firsthand of uh, getting liquidity for his shares. And so we hit it off and that was 2013 and haven't looked back ever since. That's awesome because, you know, I, I to me, that sounds like you're addressing a, a, a pain point uh, or at least a couple different pain points. And, and just in my experience, whether it's picking stocks or looking for business opportunities, addressing pain points and finding solutions to them can be pretty powerful. Um, so, yeah. so I, I, my, my hat is, uh, if I were wearing a hat, it would be off to you. <laughs> um, but, but so now th this is interesting because I, I've, I've heard about this, uh, pre IPO capabilities, right. Uh, you know, from a, from a couple different platforms, but, um, what, what's the ideal customer for equity Zen? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say we've kind of got two sets of customers. We've got investors that want to invest in private companies. And we've got employees or early investors in those companies that want liquidity. Uh, the typical kind of persona of a customer that wants to invest is someone that um, maybe wants to invest in the companies they believe in, they use every day. That's kind of a mantra we hear from a lot of uh, public investors, you know, invest in the stocks that you, you use every day. But the problem has surfaced is that you may have in, you know, 2015 or 2016 been using Uber to get to work, you might have been using DocuSign to sign your documents. And then you go into your, you know, your your brokerage account, you typed in the name and you said, oh, nothing comes up. I'm striking out. Um, that's the kind of customer we work with is someone that wants to invest in those companies they believe in, 
didn't realize that they were not publicly traded yet and say, hmm, if I could put in a little bit of money here, I know it's riskier. Um, I would love to kind of add that to my portfolio. And the funny thing is, is if you went back 15 years ago, these companies actually went public earlier. So you could invest kind of on their wave up. The great example is Amazon went public as I think of $400 million market cap company. <laughs> and, you know, they, they've, they've eclipsed letters twice. They've gone from M to B to T, right? So they're, they are big companies now. Um, whereas you had something like Facebook that was an $80 billion company. So to kind of get in on the ground floor or even, you know, the middle floor has really gotten away from the public markets. And I think investors are starting to tune up to that and say, well, if I want that kind of high growth portfolio, I might have to start looking into the private markets. So you mentioned this is this is arguably a little riskier, right? So obviously you want uh, investors that have a higher risk tolerance, correct? That's, a, that's absolutely right. Okay. And when someone goes onto the Equities End platform, are they able to pick the companies that they want or is there a way to buy a basket of companies? Yeah, they're actually eligible to do both. One requirement that you have to have is you have to be something called an accredited investor, which is sometimes a requirement for investing in private companies. Um, the typical guideline for that, I think, is an, an income threshold or a net worth threshold. But assuming you can satisfy that on the Equities End platform, you could look at single companies you want to invest in at as little as $5,000 at a time, or you can invest into a basket of companies. You kind of say, I believe in the wave that we're going in. I believe in um, the advancements we're making in technology, but I don't know one AI company from another. I don't know one enterprise SaaS company from another. Can you, can you choose that basket for me? And can I have a manager? And so we have actively managed funds as well. Excellent. Excellent. Just, just out of curiosity, and I, I, I know that because you work with private companies, you can't name names, but just curious, um, are you seeing a building wave of AI companies? And I, and I ask that because I, I think in my reading on AI, uh, venture capital dollars in 2023 was like $50 billion towards AI, something really big like that. So I have to think that you're starting to see that flow through. Absolutely. Uh, big focus uh, from investor demand on uh, AI companies. What's really interesting, though, in that trend is that a lot of these AI companies are only a few years old, right? Um, you know, they, they it hasn't been around that long. And so to to invest in these companies, there aren't that many available right now. And also, if you think about the other side of our market that we talked about, which is people that want liquidity for their shares, it would totally make sense if somebody was at a company that is 10 or 15 years old and still private to say, you know what, I could use some liquidity. But if you've only been at an AI company for 12 months, you know, you may not have the same pent up liquidity need. And so there hasn't been as active of a market for those companies, but there's definitely been tons of interest compounded by the fact that there aren't really many pure play AI companies to invest in the public markets either. So I could really yeah. appreciate that, you know, an individual investor is saying, how do I kind of put my money where people's mouths are really. How do I really get involved? And it's been a real challenge so far. Well, I, I also think though, too, when you look at the explosion in valuations for NVIDIA, AMD, uh, you know, to a lesser extent, Microsoft and, and some of the others in the Magnificent Seven, you know, today compared to almost a year ago when NVIDIA's CEO kind of really, uh, you know, opened the AI floodgates, if you will, um, you know, I would think that there's there's a lot of appetite for that type of thing. So, absolutely. And and what's so interesting is, you know, if you think about this mantra of um, 
selling shovels in the gold rush. That's kind of what NVIDIA is mm -hmm. doing, right? You know, you know, you need a lot of computing power to run these large language models. And so uh, there are also a lot of uh, upstart companies or, you know, maybe mature private companies that are trying to also address this, this need for computing power, right? So you might have NVIDIA on one hand, but you also could have another company that says, we've actually got a better chip solution or a better semiconductor solution and mm -hmm. we're growing too. So don't forget about us. Um, and so we're seeing that as well. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So, what if we were to step back um, a bit? What's your take on the IPO market? Because, you know, if we trace back, uh, you know, twenty 2020, twenty uh, to twenty twenty three, not the busiest of years for your IPO activity, and, and more to the point, uh, in twenty twenty three, there seemed to be one or two false starts that kind of happened, and. What what did not happen was the IPO window didn't open and stay opened on a sustained basis, right? Um, are you seeing that start to change? Are you a little more excited about the IPO market for 2024? What do you think? It's a great question. I'm certainly more excited and optimistic than I was in 2022 and 2023 with a bit of hesitation, maybe a bit more than some others might have. So I think if you were to talk to bankers and you were talked to, you know, financial services firms, they'd say, you know, we're getting a big pipeline built up. We're really excited. There are so many companies that are ready to go. I think, I think Goldman Sachs, the CEO said that at the end of when they reported their fourth quarter, our backlog was the highest it's ever been. There you go. There but, you go. But backlog, I mean, it's, that's funny though, because backlog has to convert to revenue, right? It's, it's kind of like this you know, I, I usually I'm, I'm going to get a little colorful here. All this bullshit about design wins because design wins are great. They're a great announcement, but if they don't convert to programs that drive revenue, they really don't mean anything. And I, I, I as an investor, uh, learned that a long time ago with a company called Three Five Systems. They were there. This was back in the heydays of the mobile phone business, not smartphone mobile phone <laughs> and and they had touted something you know some high double digit like 30 40 design wins everybody was excited and not one not one became a revenue producing program so that that this was back when i was on the sell side we were not involved with 35 i was getting ready to cover it and i was just doing my homework and i saw this unfold and I was like, good God, talk about a talk about a learning lesson. So I, I totally hear you on on some healthy skepticism, let's call it, about about you know backlog and backlog because backlog can, can continue to build. Um, why are you not as as optimistic as others to use your words about this IPO window opening? So I think your analogy was perfect. You know the the what we're seeing probably for the backlog is that there are plenty of companies that want to go public and, and want to kind of, you know, start trading on exchanges and seeing more liquidity and having more investors come in. And there are simultaneously lots of bankers that are trying to, you know, keep the, you know, uh, prove their worth and, and build up that pipeline. So it all makes sense that we have one. The, the concern I have is that you mentioned this earlier, there've been some false starts in 2023. I look at a couple of the companies, you know, in the tech world that went public in 2023. Um, there was Instacart, 
there was uh, Clavio. These were two companies that people got really excited in kind of the pre-IPO world, the tech world to say, oh, you know what? Once these things go well, they're profitable, they're growing, the floodgates are going to open, the windows wide open. We took the lock off and the companies kind of just came out. You know, they kind of, they, they, they didn't, they didn't nosedive. They kind of just sat there. They didn't, tri- you know, there wasn't a big first day pop. And if there was, it was, you know, kind of came back down quickly. So when you add that fact to the fact that there's still uncertainty about the interest rate environment and the inflationary environment that we're in, you kind of have this one-two punch of bankers saying, yeah, yeah, let's talk. And companies saying, I want to do it. But then you've got investors that say, mm, I don't think you're going to like what I so, have to offer you. So I, I'm going to push back on that just a little bit. Okay, so I, I think we know where interest rates are heading. They're going to head lower. The Fed's done raising interest rates. And, and trust me, I, I, I've been saying, and AAP members know this, that I only think we're going to get two or three rate cuts this year. I said that earlier in the year. And, and if you look at the core uh, CPI data that we got for the January that came out just a couple days ago, pretty much unchanged for four consecutive months right? Somewhere between 3.9 and 4.0%, four months in a row. That's exactly what the Fed has been concerned about, right? This stalling out for this last leg to get to 2%. I mean, it, prior to that, yes, big progress, but just we're, we're, we appear to be stalling out. So I agree with you on, on the inflation front, but the Fed's not going to raise rates anymore, right? It just yeah. means that, you know, any, any type of cuts are kind of pushed out to the back half of the year. So we know they're going to go lower. Um, you know, the other thing that I think is might be helpful for new IPOs is that um, the market valuation for S and P five hundred it's over twenty times. People are people are looking for new opportunities now. Where I think if you were to look back in uh, let's call it August September, really before the big run up in October, at the end of October. Um, that's really started to stretch multiples. People were not not as like they they could be choosier, right? And I I, I think now the number of um, uh, steak and sizzle stories, right? Because you got to have the goods, you got to have you know. Unfortunately, there tends to be some hype, but you got to have the goods. You know, the the number of those stories they're not as compelling out there in 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 the public market. So I I I'm a little more optimistic. I think you can tell about about the IPO market. There's also, you know, something like, you know, depending on who, who you want to quote, you know, a hefty amount of cash on the sidelines that that could help it. But I, I will say this, though, I and I do agree with you that just like in football, just like in golf, just like in baseball, uh, if you're up at the plate throwing the football, getting ready to, you know, to hit the golf ball, there's the motion. And the most important part of that is the follow through. Right. So we can price an IPO, but we do want to monitor closely how it trades the day after, the week after, the next couple of days. So I'm totally on board with you on that. And that is something that AAP members know that I'm watching very closely as it relates to our shares in the portfolio of Morgan Stanley Bank of America. Um, so so what would convince you, Phil, that that yes, this it, the window is open and this is happening. It's not a false start. Great question and all very valid points. So I think the false start that happened within kind of tech IPOs and Q3, Q4 of 2023 was, you had, you know, Instacart's a good example. Instacart heard, heard the message from the market. Okay, we need to have profitability. 
we don't have to just grow, 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 right? People want to see a profitable story. So Instacart got there before they went public. Um, and they were still growing top line. So they're kind of like, okay, check, check. These are good things. It's come to market. Stock stalls. So what I think that means for the next wave or for the window to open up is that whichever company kind of comes out first or first few companies come out, they're going to have to show growth and profitability. It just seems like what the market really wants right now. And they're going to have to have what I think people would classify as a successful IPO, which is um, they get it, they raise enough money and the stock trades up a little bit in the first few days. Everyone loves to see that. Everyone feels great. If we can see that and some sustained stock kind of uh, uh, pricing activity, then I think that will basically catalyze a lot of that backlog we talked about. So it's kind of like a couple of companies tested the market in Q4. They were like, we did everything that everyone told us to. The banker said, focus on profitability, a little bit of growth, check, check. And then what's going on with the market? So when you combine that with the cash on the sidelines and kind of the role that everybody's ready to play in capital markets, I've got cash to invest in great companies. I'm a good company that wants to find investors. I'm an investment bank that helps to coordinate this whole effort. Everybody wants to see it happen. So it's really just, is that thing going to trade and be successful in the first few days? If that happens, then I think you see, start to see a flood of more companies coming out. So there's, in my experience, because I, I did work in equity research and you know did deal with some IPOs back in the day, there's kind of an inherent conflict, right? In terms of IPO pricing, because it, the company wants to maximize the price. The bankers want to maximize the price because they're getting paid a piece of that. But at the same time, you have to price it such that the market sees further upside ahead, right? And and you know, let's let's be honest. You know, companies when they're getting ready to go public, they they tend to have some pretty good visibility one two quarters out, right? It's just the nature of the beast. Um, but it's that inherent conflict because I I think to get that window open, the pricing almost has to be maybe a, a scooch more conservative. Than, than it would have been previously. So it, it says that, you know, some people have to be willing to leave a little money on the table, but they need to be patient, right? To, for that yeah. to catch up. Yeah, and I'll give you a great example. So <clears throat> venture-backed companies, the ones that, that we work with a lot, you know, they, they'll raise money while they're private, kind of like, think of like a private IPO, right? They go and they raise a couple hundred million dollars from Fidelity and some venture funds. And there's usually a valuation attached to it. And so we use, uh, when we look at secondary trading that happens on equities end, a good benchmark for us is to say, how is the company trading relative to the last time they raised a bunch of money, right? Um, so the company said it was worth $5 billion two years ago. Where are things trading now? Right now, we're seeing that things are trading at roughly a 50%, 5-0 discount to the last round of funding that they had, which is steep and it's somehow it, it it's really more of a reflection about how crazy things got in 2020 and 2021. You had zero interest rate environments, ton of cash flooding into private technology companies, valuations through the roof, uh, no profits to speak of, really just investing on revenue growth. And so I believe that a lot of companies are unwilling to do what you just said, which is kind of take it on the chin and say, you know, it's okay if we raise at a $10 billion valuation two years ago. And now we come as a public company at $5 billion. That's okay. You and I both know it, Chris. Companies go up and down value all the time. That is, just, that is just a fact of life. But within this kind of tech, private tech world, 
it's something that I think maybe the founders of the companies or maybe the venture capital firms are having a tough time digesting. If we can kind of get over that hump of, uh, you know, maybe admitting what the companies are really worth and that, okay, maybe in 2021, I got a pretty crazy good deal. Then I think if you can kind of get into that motion, you probably get people more in the camp of, okay, I'm willing to price this a little bit more conservatively. Let's get this thing done. Got it. Now, I also know that, you know, you're, you much like I am paying attention to some of the higher profile deals that are coming because that's, that's kind of the litmus test, right? You know, yeah. are, are people willing to get off the bench uh, and pick up shares of these companies? And, and some of the ones that I'm keeping my eye on, Reddit, uh, the, the reissuance of Panera coming back to the public markets, um, Skims, which is, of course, the Kim Kardashian um, underwear company, uh, you know, that competes with Victoria's Secret and the like. Um, are, are there any others that you're really watching closely? I think you have a pretty good list there. Um, those those are good examples. And I think those are great examples because those are companies that people understand what they do, right? This isn't some behind the scenes automotive company or or industrial business. These are these are products that people use all the time. I think those I, I've observed that companies that are a little bit easier to market and for investors to understand tend to do well if there's been a long gap in in the IPO window. Uh, Facebook's a good example, Twitter when it went public. These are good examples where perhaps there was a more under the radar company that wanted to go public that probably waited to see how a Pandora or a Facebook or a Twitter or a LinkedIn would do in the market <laughs> you, because of the awareness. Did you say Pandora? Oh, I did say wow, Pandora. That That is a name I have not heard in some time. <laughs> <laughs> Dating myself a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, I agree. I think the list you gave is, is, is excellent and ones that we're looking on because if if those companies with the amount of awareness they have can't be successful as com- as IPO candidates, it's going to strike a little bit of fear across that 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 backlog we talked about um, as well. So you raise an interesting point, right? Because um, institutional investors will of course pour over you know, the IPO filings, the S1, they'll attend the roadshow and, you know, all this other stuff. Um, But what about individual investors? How important do you think individual investors are to the reopening of the IPO window? I think they play a big role, not necessarily in the IPO itself, but the success of that company trading after the IPO. I'll give you a great example. Uh, Palantir is a mm-hmm. company that maybe your subscribers are familiar with. Palantir was a venture-backed company. I think it went public in the end of 2020. And it's and it's gathered a pretty big retail investor following. Um, people understand the story. People are enamored with the CEO. And the stock has performed really well, particularly relative to a lot of other you know, uh, companies that went public in the same cohort or same kind of vintage as Palantir. Um, so I do think it plays a really big role once the company starts trading a bit more actively after the IPO, because in the reality, my sense is that the investors that get allocated in the IPO itself are typically really large institutions and ultra, ultra, ultra high net worth folks, uh, at, at, at the banks or that are clients of the banks, um, where retail kind of steps in is once things start trading. Um, and that's where they play a big role. And I would say it's, it's important. Uh, for those companies to kind of um, extend the front porch, right? 
to individual investors. Some companies do a very good job of it. Um, it's easier now than it's ever been, but not. I don't think all of them kind of get that. I, I, I think companies that have a um, more consumer face get it. Whereas I, I think your point about some, you know, under the hood automotive widget, you know, <laughs> we're a cog, man. People, yeah. you know, are you know for for whatever reason they they, they don't seem to kind of. Uh, to get that. Now, now, Phil, as we think about the IPO market, we of course have to think about what's transpiring in the overall market, because if we have a continued market melt-up, that, that could foster what I was saying earlier about uh, bringing companies to market. But if we see a market downturn, um, that could sour the mood. Now, uh, I, I, I will share what I'm thinking, but of course, you're the guest. I'll let you go first. Sure. Um particularly for the IPO markets, something that someone told me was volatility is basically the, the Achilles heel of the IPO market and the health of the IPO market. The more volatile the, the stocks are, the less likely you're going to be able to have an IPO come to market because you just don't know where things can price anymore. And you typically see an increase in volatility if there's a big market pullback. And so what we've observed over time is that when there are kind of drawdowns in the public markets, the IPO window completely shuts down. So what I would envision would happen is if we did see a market pullback, um, whether it has to do with, you know, uh, maybe uh, overextended enthusiasm for AI uh, and tech companies, whether it's new geopolitical risk, whether it's a complete about face on inflation and uh, and rate cuts, I would expect the IPO market to, to pretty much come to a halt, even though it's not too active now. Um, but what I think you might see is you might see some more M&A activity. Um, I think you'll start to have some of these enormous publicly traded companies now that have, you know, built a lot of, you know, valuation and market cap and say, this is a pretty valuable currency. I could probably do a lot with this. And there's some other, there's some other technologies or businesses that would fit really well here at Microsoft or wherever. We've got the stock as currency to give to them. That would really bolster and and maybe those companies aren't performing as well as we are. So I could see that in an absence, you know, in a pullback in the market, absence of IPOs, I would typically expect to see an uptick on the M&A side. So that's kind of an interesting point, right? Because, you know, most of the subscribers, are, you know, we're, we're dealing with public equities, right? But yeah. when you think about private companies, particularly ones that are venture back, at some point, at some point, uh, there needs to be a liquidity event. Right. And you see this too, even in public equity, where, where, you know, one public equity company will buy an investment from another public equity company. Right. There, this, and I, I think this ties back to the fact that uh, a venture company or a PE fund, they have funds that they need to show performance on, and they would hope to go raise another fund after that. So, so they do need to have these liquidity events from time to time. Um, and it is interesting. You're right, because with the run up in the stock market, um, stock is currency. And, you know, we could see some of these companies that are, you know, you I mean, think think of what you said a few minutes ago, where um, their funding round is, you know, 50 percent lower than it was in the past. Geez, I could struggle to get another funding round or I could just simply sell out to Microsoft or whomever. Take the cash. See you later. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. And any banker worth their salt right now that's helping that backlog of IPO candidates 
is probably running what's called a dual process, which is mm -hmm. they're working with the company and saying, look, let's get you ready for an IPO. Let's talk to potential investors to see where it might price and what it's worth. But we may as well have a bit of a stocking horse alternative, which is let's talk to who you think would be a natural acquirer of your business instead of going public. I know you want to be a public company. I know there's a lot of branding that comes with it. There's new liquidity. But if the public markets are only willing to pay, you know, 15 times earnings, but I can find someone that would that would acquire you at 20 times earnings, that's something I need to look at, right? And uh, I suspect that a lot of that backlog is going through kind of that dual process. There's probably a lot of very tired CFOs right now, you know, across the country that are that's spending <laughs> a lot of work with bankers. Um, but I think some of those will will end up, uh, you know, the machination of that will be that you'll see some some pretty big ticket M&A. Well, you know, as like I mentioned earlier, given our positions in Morgan Stanley and Bank of America, I mean, look, I would love to see investment banking activity pick up for IPOs because it eventually means, you know, more selection, right, as, as a public equity investor. Uh, but on the other hand, as a shareholder in Morgan Stanley and Bank of America, pick up an M&A drives investment banking fees, too. You know, so yeah. it uh, will we'll we'll have to see. uh what is what as it as as they say um but but i, I did ask you phil what, what what's your take on the market is it, is it getting a little frothy here do you think or or are you excited because they're, we're seeing it widen out and earnings are you know arguably showing up a little better than expected yeah so i have an interesting lens where we're kind of observing what's happening in the private markets and i always try to see what's going on in the public ones and one thing i've observed over time is that the public market kind of response is usually a leading indicator for what we'll see in the private ones rather than the other way around. So I almost refer to public market performance as kind of my crystal ball for what we might expect in the pre-IPO markets, uh, which kind of makes sense. You know, these private transactions take a lot longer than going in your Robinhood account and clicking a button and buying shares. And so you would expect a bit of a lag. So uh, I'm encouraged by what we've seen in the market so far. I have a bit of concern that the, the hype and the mania around um, AI is being a bit overpriced. Uh, I was not, you know, I was <laughs> 12 years old during the dot-com boom, so I can't really speak too authoritatively on it. But, you know, even even the kind of market pullback on on ARM recently, right, where we saw a huge jump in valuation, this huge stump, jump in stock price, and then a real quick retreat. That's, I think, what I'm a little nervous about is if that's going to be a bit more capitulation across the board, where people say, you know what, have we really pushed NVIDIA beyond the realm of what it's really worth. And then we see a bit of pullback. So that's that's something I have a bit of concern on the public markets. So I, I think that's fair. Um, I'm actually uh, running some uh, peg ratio analysis on, on some of these companies now, kind of going out to 2025, 2026. I mean, that's 2026. It, it gets a little uh, wobbly, right? The, the crystal balls aren't that clear. Um, but, you know, if... Um, let, let's just say that we are seeing, um, we're, we're moving past the hopium, as I call it, um, <laughs> in, uh, of AI from 2023, we're seeing things actually start to come to market, right? Where, whether it's Microsoft Copilot or AI and Baird, Gemini, uh, and others, and we're starting to see the uptake in the use. Right. I, I think that's what's more important now. Um, 
and also seeing other companies start to use it. There, there, there is one uh, company in the AAP portfolio. I kind of use it as a as an example here. It's Axon Enterprises, the body camera company. They're using AI to drive productivity inside of public safety. So to the extent we see more real world applications, not just AI, 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 I think I, I think there's a lot more legs. Um, and I actually did a great podcast last week with the folks at Zapata and Zapata AI. And it was really, really interesting because um, this is a guy who's been CEO steeped in AI for years, right? He has, he has real world clients and they're tackling industrial problems. And he's, he's pretty excited about it. Um, he too sees it kind of broadening out. He, he thinks there's some issues that need to be addressed with more smaller mo- uh, smaller language models in order to drive company-specific solutions, not, not just general solutions, and I agree with that. Um, but I'm, I'm a little more upbeat, I think. Um, but ultimately, I, I think it's going to be a tool. So I, I think the key now is to see um, the widening out of applications, just like we saw with the internet. You know, as I've often said, um, if uh, if I could talk to your 11-year-old self, Phil, I would have said, <laughs> Phil, wow, sure looks like a lot of online shopping. Uh, but back in the day, but back in the day when Netscape was first a browser, and that's probably a browser that half the people listening never heard of, but it was the first one, um, you could have gone to the Gap site and they would have shown you the picture of like a sweatshirt, right? Uh, could you have changed the color? No. Could you have uh, said, hey, what sizes do you have? No. Could you order? No. Could you, you know, any of that stuff? No, 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 no. Um, so the fact today that we're, we're conducting this, you know, uh, podcast the way we are, um, you know, you can order up your groceries online, you can tra- transact online, do all the things that we've come to accept. My, my opinion is that there might be some false starts in AI, but ultimately five to 10 years from now, it'll probably be a tool that's helping us do a lot more than we ever thought. Totally agree. I think you probably crystallized and made a much more succinct point that maybe I was trying to make, which is while I may have concern about the overheating of some of the Microsofts and NVIDIAs of the world, what I'm really excited about is basically a step function improvement in productivity, in revenue generation, for the rest of the stock market, right? So it's it, the question really is how quickly can public companies adopt AI into their business model to save costs, drive revenue? That's gonna be really exciting. And I think your analogy about kind of the internet starting to kind of trickle its way into pretty much every aspect of our lives and therefore every publicly traded company, I think that is inevitable for AI, which is really exciting. Um, the question is how long it's going to take and how quickly business leaders can implement it. But it does feel like uh, the mandate is now pretty clear for CEOs. It's this is a tool that should not be ignored. This is a this is a generational opportunity for what we can do with our business. I I, I agree. I I think what we need to watch as investors though is you know in the second half of um, 2023, I can't think of a conference call that did not mention AI, right? So, so we need to continue to move past the just mentioning it to actually showing something, you know, that that drives, you know, productivity, that drives revenue that people can use in a real world setting. Uh, and I'm excited. I think I think we will see it. 
I, I think there might be room for some disappointment along the way. That's all. It's very well said. We got to see the steak, not just the sizzle. <laughs> yes, I did say that. You're right. You're right. <laughs> all right. All right, Phil, you've been so generous with your time. Before we get out of here, anything we didn't talk about that you think the list, the um, either you want to share or you think the audience needs to hear? Thank you for asking. I think the only thing that came to mind for me as we were talking about is for your listeners, you know, as you're exploring kind of investments in the public markets, one statistic that I've always found interesting is that in the last 15 years, the number of publicly traded companies has gone down by about a third. And it kind of dovetails into why equities then exists. And so it's kind of an open call for listeners to think about if you want to invest in kind of the next wave of new companies, um, it would, you know, I would encourage you to look in in private markets, not just equities end, but just generally about startups and other opportunities, because I think the opportunity to build your portfolio the way you did it 20, 25 years ago has completely changed uh, just because we've got fewer public companies, um, got more private ones. And if you want to kind of reconstruct that, um, that's just something I want to encourage listeners to think about. So let, let me let me have a follow on with that. So, you know, for folks that want to kind of read up on and get into understanding private companies more, any, any resources you would recommend, Phil? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, obviously biased, but we've got our own kind of uh, education center and 101 center on the Equities End website. But the way that I kind of learned even when we got Equities End started was I started subscribing to more of kind of the tech-focused uh, uh literature out there. So TechCrunch is a great example of a website that does a lot of coverage on, on private tech companies. So I really like their stuff. Axios, A-X-I-O-S is another one. And so I would encourage people to kind of just start searching for um, the companies that they're using, you know, in their day-to-day -day life, read about them, try to find some press about how they're performing. And I think that's a great kind of wedge to kind of get comfortable, get familiar with what they're doing. And then from there, you can kind of pivot over to how would I build that into a portfolio? I, I think that is sage advice, and wh whether you know it or not, Phil, you're really cribbing from one of the best, Peter Lynch, one up on Wall Street, <laughs> right, where where he would talk about buying what you know, and I, I totally agree with that. When I was teaching finance classes and, you know, students would ask, hey, how can I get started? I would always say, let's talk about one or two companies that whose products you love. Right. You're 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 more interested as an investor and you're more willing to sift through and learn more about that company because of the affinity that you have for it. I, I, I think that is great advice. Um, Phil, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm going to reserve the right to call you back in about six months, if that's OK, <laughs> so we can check in on the IPO market. Um, hopefully we'll have, uh, you know, a lot more things to talk about in terms of deals that have priced. Uh, but maybe there'll be a little more enthusiasm for the back half of the year as well. We'll see. Yeah, great. Well, thank you for having me, and I look forward to that follow-up. All right, members, that is today's podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll be back next week with another podcast. Thanks for listening.